book of Romans, one of the masterpieces of the writings of Paul. Uh, it's, it's the book of Romans. It's a, it, it's created such a such a a, a, a transformation in, in in the hearts of people who have read it, who have studied it, who have heard it being taught. And and uh, my desire as we go through the book of Romans is that that would be uh, the case as well with us as we go through it, as we read it, as we teach it, as we listen to it, as you read it on your own, that your hearts would just be transformed and uh, be taught and be established and firmly rooted and grounded. And so, the the book of Romans. Again, chapter 1, uh, we've seen that, that Paul, as he begins his letter, uh, he is establishing this theme in these opening verses in, there in chapter 1. And that is the righteousness of God. And it's like before he says anything else, he has to first establish the righteousness of God there in chapter 1 in those opening verses. And we see that, that Paul begins uh, by first showing us the unrighteousness of man as his contrast. He's showing the righteousness of God. But first, he, he starts off by showing the unrighteousness of man, right? And, and it's because until a person knows that he's a sinner, then you cannot really appreciate the grace of God through salvation in Jesus Christ, right? It's like you can't, the gospel is called the good news. That's, what, that's literally what it means, good news, uh, good tidings, good news. And it's like good news isn't good news until you've heard the bad news, right? If someone tells me, hey, man, you're, you're cancer-free, all right, cool, well, that's good. Right? Well, actually, a few weeks ago, you went through your x-rays and through your, all your paperwork and you, were, uh, you had terminal cancer. Oh, man, well, then this is good news then. Right? So you, can't, you can't know the good news unless you, you're aware of, of the bad news. And, and that's really the condition of man, the sinful condition of man. And so we see that in chapter 1, Paul demonstrates how the Gentile world, that is all those who are considered non-Jews, how the Gentile world is guilty before God. And then in chapter 2, we see how he establishes for us how the Jewish world is guilty before God or those religious ones. And then in chapter 3, he, just, he goes on by showing us how the whole world is guilty before God. And then after that, he just pours out abundantly God's grace on the hearer, on the, on the listener, on the reader. Right? And so we see that there in verses 18 to 23, Paul describes a group of people who, who know, who know in their hearts, who know God through creation, right? Paul, last week, he, we, we, we mentioned how Paul said hey, that, 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 that God has revealed, that he has known, that, that God has, has made himself known to those who maybe haven't heard the word of God, but God has made himself known to them through creation. You know, that is that, that general revelation of God, right? You can look at the stars, look at the moons, look at the whole world, look at these awesome oceans, rivers, animals, and think, man, this creation speaks of a creator, Right? And so Paul says, hey man, uh, God has made himself known to all the hearts. And so verses 18 to 23, Paul describes a group of people who know God through creation, yet suppress their knowledge of God and reject it to pursue their own lust. Right? And we see that all the time. I mean, the majority of the world, the majority of the United States for sure, it, it, it falls into this category. Right? They have a knowledge of God, but they reject, it, they reject that God that they have knowledge of as being the one true God, the God of the Bible, the Creator. You know, they would they'll put different terms on Him, like uh, Mother Earth or uh, uh, the Man upstairs or a Big Energy or whatever different things you've heard out there, right? They reject it from being, hey, Jesus Christ, the one true God. They have this notion of Creator of a Creator, but they don't want Him to be the God of the Bible. And so Paul says, hey, there's this group of people who, who have knowledge of God in their hearts, but yet they suppress, meaning that they hide, they push down, they, they keep it from, from rising up. That's what that, what that word suppress gives you the idea of, of this knowledge trying to come up, and yet they're going, nope, nope, stay down there, stay buried. 
they bury this truth of God in their hearts and reject it in order to pursue their own lust. Why? Because the knowledge of God, of the one true God, uh, now makes us accountable to his one true God. Right? If, if I know that there's a God that exists who is righteous, who is holy, who is just, then that means that this righteous, holy, just God is going to judge my unrighteousness, my unholiness, and, and my injustice. And so what do I do? I suppress that knowledge of this God because I want to face that judgment. Right? And we see this happening all the time. And so Paul says about those people, he says, hey, they are without excuse. Why? Because they have the knowledge of God in their hearts, and yet they suppress it knowingly. Now, as we, as we continue on this next, this next chapter, we're going to pick it up there in verse 24, where we left off last week. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to see that Paul's going to paint for us uh, kind of an unpleasant picture. It's one of the harder passages uh, of Scripture to, to teach through. If I had the choice this morning and, and, and I could pick whatever passage I wanted to teach through, I probably wouldn't pick this one, right? And you'll see, you'll see why later on. But it's like, but nonetheless, we have to go through it. It's like that, you know, there's every neighborhood, every neighborhood has that one street, that just an ugly street. You don't want to go through that street. But, and, and so you try to just kind of navigate around it through your, on your route home. You, you, you miss it, right? You go this way instead of going through it. You find a different way home. You detour. But just because you don't go down that street uh, doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. Or just because you neglect it or you pretend like it's not there, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That street is still going to be there. And so that's similar with, 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 with some of these passages in Scripture that, that are kind of unpopular. It's like, all right, just because I don't teach out of them or, or don't read them or choose to not acknowledge them doesn't mean that they're not there. And so they're there. And we're going to go through it this morning. So starting there in verse 24, it says, uh, Therefore... God also gave them up to their uncleanness of the lust of their hearts, to the uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor the bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And again, so we're picking up on, on Paul's thought that he started on last week. Again, as he's mentioning these, this specific group of people who have a knowledge of God in their hearts, but yet suppress this knowledge of God in their hearts. And Paul says to those people, he says, therefore, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so Paul says, hey, God gave them up to, to their own lust. Those people who rejected the knowledge of God from ruling in their hearts and reigning in their hearts, he says, God gave them up to their own lust. Meaning that God allowed them to strive against that eternal knowledge of himself uh, that they had in them. God allowed it. When it says that God gave them up, it means that, all right, he didn't force them. He just, he allowed it. They were striving against that knowledge. They were suppressing that knowledge. They were desiring to hide it. And God says, all right, I'm not going to force you, right? God does not force anybody. He doesn't force anybody to serve him. He doesn't force anybody to love him. He doesn't force anybody to come and know him. Right? Forced love is rape. And God is not a rapist. He's not going to force his will upon anybody. And so he says, all right, you want to strive against, against this knowledge of God in your heart? He says, go ahead. And so we're told that God gave them over to, their, to, to, to the lust of their hearts. Right? Now, interesting that, uh, again, as Paul says that, you know, there later on in verse 23, verse 23 says that, that, that they changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of corruptible man. And really, this is the root of their sin, that as they had this knowledge of God in their hearts, they changed that knowledge of this glorious God and made it about themselves. And so they rejected the one true God and placed themselves as God over their own lives. 
And this is the original sin. I mean, if you take it back to the garden there in, in Genesis chapter, chapters, uh, uh, chapters 2 and 3, as Satan came in and he deceived Adam and Eve, what was the first thing that, that, that he told Eve? He says, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Right? That was one of the original sins. That, that Satan came in and, and, and he caused, he, he put this, he, he sold this, this, this seed in the hearts of, of, of Eve and of Adam. He told, hey, if you eat this, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. God is glorious. God is just majestic. They knew God had created the whole world in seven days. He, he had created them and they wanted to be like God. And really there's that, that, there's that, that notion in our hearts. Right? There's, that, there's that simple uh, intent in our hearts that always wants to kind of take place of God in our lives. Right? We want to be our own gods. Right? And, and, and so Paul says, Amen. Look, they rejected the one true God and placed themselves as gods over their own lives. That little inclination that God put in their hearts to, to, to bring them back to himself. He says, oh, you know what? That's me. It's all about me. I'm that God. I'm the God of my own life. Right? Now, think about this. If man is his own God, which a lot of people believe that, hey, man, I don't believe in God. I'm my own God. I do whatever I want. All of a sudden, they get sick and, you know, they're on their deathbed. And, hey, man, you're not that much of a God. Right? You have no control over your life. Your life is like a vapor. The Bible would say it's here in one moment and, and then it's gone the next. But think about this. If man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases Without fear of judgment or consequence. And really this whole philosophy, this whole thinking behind, hey, I'm my own God. I'm my, I make my own rules. Really comes down to this. Meaning, saying, I don't have to answer to anybody. Right? Both now and in eternity. Why? Because I make, I make up my own rules. I'm, the, I'm my own God. Now, really that's what this world is trying to do now. Right? They've been slowly... Now more rapidly removing God from society, removing God from schools, removing God from our court system, removing God from our judicial system, removing God from our, 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 our local laws, right? All kinds of things. Removing God from society, period. That's what the world is designed to do. They're trying to remove God from society so that they can continue on with their own perverted agendas, right? With no accountability. And hey, man, we don't have to answer to nobody. If, if God doesn't exist, then there is no moral law that I have to answer to, Right? And so if there is no moral law giver, then that means that there is no moral law and that means that truth is subjective. Hey, if you think this is right, then that's, that's cool. That's, that's up to you. If this, you think this is right, then that's up to you. If you think that's wrong, then hey, that's your own type of wrong. That's your own moral law. And everybody makes up their own moral laws and truth is subjective to uh, the listener or the hearer or, or the, the individual person. That's what society is trying to do as they remove God from society. That is what, 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 they're, what they're desiring to do. And so we see that, that as a, again, that, that, that as Paul is speaking, right? And he's saying, he's saying, hey, look, this is what the, what, what, the, what, the, what the people are doing. This is what the world is doing, right? You guys good? Sorry. Let me show you. Yeah? Oh, <laughs> that was an emergency. That was an emergency. And so he's saying, hey, look, if man is his own God, then again, then, then, then that means that these moral laws uh, don't apply. Right? You ask somebody who, who is an atheist or you ask somebody who doesn't believe in God, you think, hey man, is, is uh, sex outside of marriage wrong? Most of the time they'll say, nope, no it's not. Right? Why? Because I'm not subject to, to, the, to the laws and to the truths of the Bible. Right? Because I don't believe a God, therefore I don't believe the God of the Bible, and therefore I don't believe uh, what, the, what, what God says concerning that matter. And you ask them something like, oh, is rape wrong? Like, oh, well, you know, I guess it depends on the circumstance. Well, is rape always wrong? Yeah, rape is always wrong. Well, who put that moral law in your heart? Who decides that, that that rape is always wrong? Right? Hey, so truth is not subjective. Truth is absolute. 
But again, as a society uh, takes God out of the equation, takes God out of the picture, then, then this truth becomes subjective. And that's what Paul is saying. They look, they replaced the knowledge of the glorious God in their hearts and they, and they replaced it with the knowledge of corruptible man. And so again, if there's no moral law given, then there's no moral law and truth is subjective. And the question is, I mean, who's to say what is right and what is wrong? You know, and, and my idea of wrong can be different than your idea of wrong or her idea of wrong. And so the question is, well, who's right? And so Paul says, no. He says, we all have a moral law given in our hearts by God. We all have that knowledge of God in our hearts that He's placed there. And so he goes on to say, then in verse 26, he says, And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which, which was due. And verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, mal- maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. They're proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And verse 32 says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. A lot to break down there. But really again, as, as Paul goes in there deep, Right? He says, because these people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped themselves as gods, then God gave them over, over to their own passions. He gave them over, over to, 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 to their own desires, meaning that he, he permitted it. Right? He permitted it to go on. And what was the result? He said, hey, there's just this self-indulgence, right? specifically in the area of, 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 of sexual immorality. And now we see that Paul uses uh, homosexuality, you know, both female and male as an example of God giving mankind over to this uncleanness and, and, and their own lust. In verse 28, he calls it unfitting or, or, or unnatural, he says. Now keep in mind that, that Paul is writing from the city of Corinth. As he's writing the book of Romans, he at this point has never been to Rome. He's writing actually from, from the city of Corinth. Now Paul wrote to a culture where, uh, where homosexuality was accepted as part of life, both for men and women. Uh, for some 200 years, historically, the men who, who ruled the Roman Empire openly practiced homosexuality. That's something you don't see on the History Channel or National Geographic as they do all these documentaries on ancient Rome. That's one thing that they never mention. Actually, at, at the time that Paul wrote this, uh, the Roman Emperor Nero was, was in power. He was the emperor at the time. And history tells us that, that, that Nero took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated. Uh, he then married him. With the whole ceremony and the, and, the, and the whole thing. And then he brought him to his palace and made the boy his wife. Later on in his life, Nero, uh, Nero married, married a man. He openly practiced homosexuality. And, and, and he became that man's, that man's wife. The Roman Emperor Nero. So some crazy things going on there, 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 there in, the, in the Roman Empire. In the first century. Now Paul wrote this to a culture much like ours. Right? Much like ours. I mean, you look at society today. Hey man, nothing much has, has changed. Like Solomon would say, hey, there's nothing new under the sun. Right? It's happened. It's been happening forever. Right? Even before the Roman Empire, hey, man, it was happening way before that. There in Sodom and Gomorrah, and even way before that. 
right? There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon would say. It shouldn't come as a surprise for us, right? Paul wrote this again to a culture much like ours today, where it was unpopular to speak against this specific type of lifestyle. And here's Paul saying, laying it out, playing it clearly. Look, it's unnatural, right? This is a result of God giving, giving, giving mankind over to, to, to the lust of their flesh, right? Because they rejected the knowledge of God in their hearts. And now, with that as, as, a, as a topic for now, I don't want to spend too, too much time on it, but, but, but as, we, as we're reading about the topic and as we're on the topic, you know, I'm going to say this, that, that homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin, right? As some people might think, oh man, he's homosexual, but there's no hope for him. That's not true. It's not the unforgivable sin, right? God loves the person in this lifestyle. And I can say this 100%, and I can say this with a clean heart. God loves the person in this lifestyle, and so should we. I think of all people, Christians should be the most loving of individuals in this specific lifestyle. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But I think Christians should be the most loving when it comes to this specific lifestyle. Now, we see that, that, that again, that God loves this person in this lifestyle. right? But God rejects the lifestyle because it goes contrary to God's perfect plan for mankind, which is a man and a woman under holy matrimony. Right now, it's not something that, that we should be practicing as Christians. Also, as Paul is addressing this, we see that, that that God rejects this lifestyle just as much as He rejects the lifestyle of a heterosexual man or person living in promiscuity, jumping from partner to partner to partner. There's it's the same sin to God, right? Some people, especially in, in Christian circles, they they tend to to elevate certain sins more than others. And they think, all right, man, if, if you're living this type of lifestyle, you're like, you're like on this category. And if you're here, then you're in this category. You're in this, here, then you're in this category. And really, there, there's, no, there's no difference between that, with, between somebody living this lifestyle and, and a heterosexual person living from partner to partner, uh, unrestrained, uh, outside of the, of, the, of, of, of the umbrella of matrimony. Right? <laughs> to God, he says, hey, man, you're both in sin. It's still sin. Right? Now... Again, God rejects this lifestyle, but He loves the person. He loves the person, right? And, 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 so, and so sin, again, God rejects the sin, right? It, it, again, because it goes against His perfect design for mankind. Now, Paul would, would uh, kind of go deeper on this subject there in 1 Corinthians 6. When he would say this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he would say, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amazing. As Paul is writing to the church, he says, hey, such were some of you. As he gives this whole list of, 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 of different sins, he says, hey, that was you guys, right? And that's what the church is. The church is made up of a bunch of forgiven sinners. That's it. Not that I, man, he's more sinful than me and I'm more sinful than him and that she's more sinful than her. So they got to be in their own little corners or, or we got to deal with them differently. No, right? The church is a room full of sinners. Right? The biggest fat is one standing right here at the pulpit. We're all sinners. But Paul says as he's writing to the church, he says, hey, at such were some of you. Okay, he's writing to the church. Meaning that from those categories of, of, of sins that he says, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, drunkards, thieves, uh, extortioners, all these things. Hey, 
such were some of, some of you. Right? He's writing to the church. Someone could argue and, and, and say, hey man, well, I was born this way. You know, and, and, and I won't argue with that. Someone will say, you know, I was born this way. I won't argue with that. Right? We live in a, in, a, in, a, in a fallen world because of sin. And there's all kinds of things that, 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 uh, that, that, that have now been distorted. And someone might argue, hey, I was born this way and I don't argue with that. Just like someone can argue, hey, I was born a heterosexual straight man with a desire to sleep with multiple women. So nobody should judge me if, I, if my desire to, is, to, is to live a life of promiscuity and sleep with multiple, multiple women unrestrained. That's how I was born. I was born with those desires. What can I do? I got to give in to them. No. Right? Someone else might argue, hey, well, I was born with this desire. I was born with sticky fingers. And, 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 and since I was little, the, I, could, I could remember I just love stealing things, right? And I, I have no control over it. So I should just, man, you, you shouldn't judge me for, for the way I live and for, and for, and for, the way, and the, and for my lifestyle of stealing. I would say, well, I don't argue with the fact that with, with, with what they're saying that they were born in that way. But I would say this, that Jesus said there, John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so someone could say, hey, I was born this way. And Jesus answered, hey, you must be born again. As for all of us, every single one of us. Jesus says, hey, we all must be born again. He would say later on in that chapter in verse 6, he would say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Right? And so I don't, I don't reject the fact that, that someone could say, I was born this with, the, with these desires. I get that. Right? I mean, I have family members in their lifestyle and I love them to death. And I would do anything for them. I don't agree with their lifestyles, but I love them. Just as much as I love anybody else. I, I would do anything. I would probably kill for them. And I love them. Now, I don't agree with their lifestyles, but, 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 but I, I do recognize that, 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 that there's hope for every single one of us. Right? And that God's desire is that we, we would all be born again. So Jesus would tell Nicodemus again, He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Right? And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then Paul addresses those who approve of these sins also. And they're, in verse, they're in verse 29. Again, as he mentions that whole long list of sins, he says, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, all these things, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters. As, as Paul mentions all these, sin, all these sins, you know, and then he mentions those who approve of those sins. They're in, they're in, the, in the last verse, he says, and knowing that the righteous judgment of God and those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so not only were, were, were people committing these sins, but, but they were applauding and they were encouraging those who were, who were committing them. Right? And so Paul is writing to them saying, hey, you're just as guilty as them. Someone might say, hey, well, I'm not the one that's doing it. Right? But if you're taking pleasure in, 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 in their sins, Paul say, hey, you're, you're just as guilty. Your hands are dirty as well. Right? I was watching, we're on our lunch break and uh, some, some guys were watching a video of, uh, of all the break-ins and stuff, you know, and, and I guess someone break into, I guess there's been a lot of break-ins at jewelry stores, stuff like that, like never before. And one of the guys like, oh, yeah, that's what they get, man. He says, uh, you know, they're, they're, can't believe they're, they're charging people that much for, for stuff, you know, and now coming out of a pandemic and all that, that's what they get. And, and, and uh, I told him, hey, bro, I was like, you're just as guilty as them. You know, you might not be the one over there smashing the windows and, and beating up the clerk and taking the stuff. But because you're indulging in that, because you're, you're rejoicing in it, he said, dude, you're just as guilty. Right? And that's what Paul would say. He said, hey, man, those who applaud it, those who, who, who maybe are not partakers, but they're encouraging it. Paul says, hey, man, you're, you're, you're just as guilty as a person who is committing that sin. 
And so the question is, how are we then to treat those in our lives who live in such a way? Right? Us being Christians and, 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 and us not wanting to apply it or encourage it or, or whatever. Then, then, then how are we supposed to treat those who are, who are living in such a way, those in our, in our, who are closest to us? Well, Peter says it right there in First Peter 4, 4, 8. He says, and above all things, he says, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter says, they have fervent love. That fervent love is, amen, this burning love, this uh, unquenchable love, this unrestrained love, this love without prejudice. He says, have this fervent love for one another. Why? Because love will cover a multitude of sins. And then in chapter 2, there in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And Paul is just hardcore. He's addressing now the, the, the bystanders, the onlookers. You know, those who, those who look at the people practicing these things and condemn them. Say, man, yeah, they're, I can't believe they're doing that. Man, those guys are so horrible. Yeah, they deserve judgment. And yet they're doing the same exact thing. And Paul says, hey man, do you think you're, you're above them? He's saying, you think you're going to escape judgment? Right? Now he's most likely addressing the Jewish reader or, or the, the, the Jewish believer they're, they're, in, they're in Rome at the moment. Right? The Jewish believer who thinks that, that because they have the law that they are excused from their behavior. But really that could apply for any, anybody with a religious type of mentality. Yeah, I'll go to church. So, man, well, yeah, I'm doing the same thing, but at least I go to church. At least I'm trying. Or yeah, uh, I'm doing. The, they're 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 condemned, or you know they they're you know God's gonna judge them, but me because I belong to you know this church or this that or the other because I went to this group or whatever. It is, I'm above that. But no, Paul says, hey man, you think you think you're above? He says, you think you're above? Uh, uh, you're inexcusable from this. He says, you are inexcusable, you who judge this behavior and practice these same things. It's like that parable that, that, that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector there in Luke 18. As Jesus tells this, this, uh, this parable, he says this in Luke 18.10. 18, he says, also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Again, nothing new is under the sun. There's been this type of people all since the very beginning. And in Jesus' day, as he was doing ministry there, there in Judea and in Galilee, there was these religious leaders who kind of walked up with their nose up in the air all the time, right? They didn't want to brush up against a, a Gentile because they, they believed that even if their, if their robe touched a Gentile, that now they had to go home, take a bath, do a ritual cleansing. They're like, oh man, I can't believe I touched a sinner. They would do all these outward things and inwardly their, their hearts were wicked, they were dirty, they were, they were corrupt. Later on, he would call them whitewashed tombs. He said, man, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. He said, the tomb is all nice and clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. And so uh, uh, Jesus addresses them in this parable there in Luke 18.10. He says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And he says this parable, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. Now keep in mind that, that in their day, a tax collector uh, would be a Jewish 
tax collector who was working for the Romans. So for the Jews, man, they hated this guy. He was a betrayer. He turned their back on their culture, turned their back on their people, turned their back on their religion. And he was, and usually the taxpayer, he would make his own wage. So the Jewish taxpayer, the Roman would say, all right, uh, charge the people 6%. And whatever you, and just put on whatever on top of that for yourself, for your income. So he's like, all right, 6%. Uh, he'll go down to the people and say, all right, taxes 12%. All right, and 6% went to Rome and the other 6 went to him. And the people knew it, so they hated this guy. And so Jesus, as, as he's telling this, par this parable of the two people, he says, one of them was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. And he says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And he says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing far off or, or far away, he says that he wouldn't even so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But instead he started just beating his chest, saying, God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said this, he says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. Rather than the other guy, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the guy that, that, that Paul is addressing. The one who says, who on looks, who's looking on, who's a bystander, who's a bystander to someone else's sins, and he says, I can't believe they're doing that stuff. And they go home and behind closed doors where nobody sees, on their phone, or once their wives are asleep or whatever, or, or they're at work and no one sees them, or they're out of town. Hey Amen. They practice those same exact things. And Paul says, hey man, don't think that, 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 you're, that you're above reproach on this. Don't think that, that you're above uh, correction on this. Right? What Paul is describing is, is someone who's known as a moralist. Uh, someone who promotes good moral principles, but yet condemns those who practice the immoral ones. And yet he himself is practicing those very same things that he's condemning. Right? Someone who's just puffed up with himself. Oh man, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. I can't believe you're doing that. That's not the way to do that. No, you should be looking like this. And yet, he goes on and he practices those same exact things. It's like a facade, right? Just for the people to see. Think, oh man, this guy's so holy. Man, this guy's so nice. Look at the way he dresses. Look at his no shoes. Man, this guy's always clean. Clean cut. He must be, he's the way he speaks, right? He never cusses, never said anything bad. Man, this guy must be so holy. But yet, behind closed doors, like he's a whole different person. And Paul's addressing this specific person. And he says, what makes you think that you will escape the judgment of God any more than that person? Man, Paul's just cutting him to the heart he says this in verse 4 now he says or do you despise the riches of, good, of his goodness of God's goodness forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. He will render eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, then he will give them indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, and on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. Now, let's pause again, just, just, just pounding down this, this, uh, this theme here 
He says, do you despise the riches of his goodness? Again, talking to that person who is acting like a two-faced, talking to that person who, who maybe is, is in sin or, or, or is judging someone who's in sin, but he's doing the very same thing. He says, hey, do you despise the riches of his goodness? Now, one may ask, uh, as, you, as we see just, man, sinful, the sinful world just kind of going on around us, and it seems like everyone's just getting away with this sin, right, doing their own thing. And, and someone may ask, man, how is it, you know, or, or, or why do those who sin against God seem to be getting away with it? Why doesn't God do something? I was talking to the guy, he said, oh, I, I don't believe in God because God existed and he would have done X, 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 Y, and Z to, in this situation. So therefore, I don't believe that God exists or else he would have intervened, right? Well, the truth is that God will intervene, right? There's going to be a final judgment where everything's going to be judged. But really, Paul says this. He says, do you despise the riches of his goodness? Paul says that it's God's goodness, that it's God's forbearance, that it's God's long-suffering or patience extended to the sinner that brings a person to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you think about our lives and how patient, how good, how loving right, God has been in our lives, even before we came to know Him. I went to my, my, my buddy's birthday parties the other, the other day in a ran to a lot of old homies and I'm like, hey man, I haven't seen you in a while, this, that, the other. And they started, you know, story time and and uh, I started, and as I was there sitting with them, I started thinking, man, God was so good to me. You know, I should have died a long time ago, multiple times. I should have, this, is that, and the other. And, and I walked away that night just thinking, man, God, you've always been with me. Even when I didn't want anything to do with you. God, you were just with me. And that made me just want to park my car before I went inside and just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. And so Paul's saying, hey, look, it's God's goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering extended to the sinner that brings a person to repentance and faith in Christ. And again, think about how God has been, how good God has been to us, you know, despite our rejection of him in our lives. And then when you realize that it just causes you to just fall more in love with God. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, hey, it's God's goodness that leads a person to repentance. So when you realize that God is good to you, despite how horrible you've been to him. And that He's going to continue being good to you, no matter how much you reject Him. He's going to continue to be loving to you. He's going to continue to be long-suffering, patient, all these things. No matter how much you want to say you hate Him, He'll still extend that love and mercy. And it's that, that, that God is saying, hey man, that brings a transforming work in our hearts. Now, I don't see the need to stand on a street corner with a sign that says, repent or burn in hell. Like a lot of people do, right? I've seen them, I've seen them, I get turned off, I go, oh, give me the creep. I turn the other way, right? Because judgment, the judgment, the judgment of God doesn't bring a person to repentance. It's the love of God that brings a person to repentance. It's His love, His mercy, right? His patience with us. That loving, that that that, that loving touch of a father, right? I've got the father knowing, hey, man, look, I'm drawing you to myself. It's that, that that brings us to repentance, right? Not that, hey, man, you better change your life. You better, you're gonna go to hell or this and that, dude. Get away from me, man. Right. Turn or burn, we call them. So Paul says there again now in verse 10, he says, well, verse 9, he says, again, all these things, right? He says, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil, on the Jew first and also on the Greek. He's addressing the Jews because they think they were holier than thou. They thought, oh, man, well, we're, we're Jews, right? We've been chosen from way back then. We're, we're above them. And Paul says, hey, look, man, just like you were chosen, Right uh, uh, to, to bring salvation to, to the whole world He says also man When you're condemned You're going to be condemned first He says to the Jew first And then to the Greek I mean then to the whole world 
says, For there is no partiality with God. Well, sorry, verse 10 says, But honor, glory, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It says, For there is no partiality with God. He says, Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. Now, Paul is not preaching a, a, a salvation based on your own works, right? But what he's saying, what Paul's saying is that the consistent character of someone practicing these things is the fruit of their salvation. I mean, you see a person being transformed and, and all of a sudden, you know, they used to do this, now they're doing this. It's not that they're doing it out of religiosity. I got to keep on doing this because I got to keep pleasing God. No, but it's an it's internal work that, 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 that happens in their heart and, it, and it's manifested outwardly, right? As they're doing these good works, it's the fruit of something that's happening in here. Right, as we go out there and we do whatever we do for the Lord, hey, it's not out of obligation. It's not out of, all right, go be because we're also, you know, God's going to kick me off the list. No, not even like that. But it's, it, it's this working heart, right? It's, it's this working inside of our hearts. And everything that happens out of it is a byproduct, a byproduct of our relationship with Christ. Now, this is something that, that, that goes for all people. You know, he says, hey, it's for everyone, right? It, it, it goes for all people. It's not for a specific people group. Uh, just because their name of their name or their title says for the for the Jew first to the Greek is really it's for the whole world. He says for there is no partiality with God, meaning that God's not gonna favor a people group over another or a person over another because of your title, your position, what you did, what you didn't do, right? I can't go up to God and and, and when we're in heaven, be like, all right, God, look, I did all these things. I went to the Amazons, this, that, mission trips, planted church, all that. Uh, they only went to church every Sunday and Wednesday and this and that. So let me get a firm row seat in heaven. I was going to say like, point, go to the back of the line, <laughs> right? Hey, there's no, there's no partiality with God, right? That means nothing to God, right? We elevate men, we put them on pedestals for what they do, but God doesn't. To him, that means nothing, right? He says, there is no partiality with God. I love that. I love that because that makes us all equal. That makes us all equal in the eyes of God, right? And therefore gives us all the same hope of salvation, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter what this looks like internally it's it's an equal opportunity god is an equal opportunity employer he offers salvation to everyone without restraint with no partiality amen i'm gonna stop right there i think it's a good point to stop and we'll pick it up next week and verse 12 and uh we want man what a better no better way than to celebrate this in 